so it's possible in life <clears throat> and even among the complexities and the difficulties and the busynesses of life it's possible that we at some point start to feel an erotic attraction uh, we have eros for uh, values for moral values and um, that eros allows, instigates, stimulates a soul-making in relationship to those values. Or in the, in the uh, dynamic, in the process, in the journey of soul-making anyway, at some point, uh, moral values begin to come alive. Uh, begin to be swept up into, included, involved um, in the soul-making dynamic. And as such, either way, they the values become for us erotic images. Or this value or that value, or values as a whole, moral values as a whole, become erotic images, become um, ideational images, the ideational, imaginal sense of values can begin to open up. And with that, implicit in all that, is the sense of them, of, of these moral values as ideas, ideals, having dimensionality, having this beyondness, and being uh, pregnant with meaningfulness, m- meaningfulnesses, and gracing us with a sense, uh, an expanded sense of meaningfulness. All this is part of what happens as, as soul-making starts to involve values, as values start to stimulate the soul-making and the eros. And they uh, complicate, enrich, deepen, strengthen the relationship with moral values in this sense. And of course that affects our choices in life, affects our perspectives on life, our sensibilities in life, and our choices. So it becomes... Um, easier to choose that which is not easy. To make this uh, ethical choice, this sacrifice, this renunciation, this um, involvement in an activism or protest or whatever. We're not uh, so limited that we are pushed and constrained to choose uh, just what is easy or what we think makes us happy. We can talk more about the joy of this kind of relationship. Joy for me is a richer word, is a more soulful and spiritual word than just happiness. So, and part of that joy, and part of that whole relationship, is the uh, capacity to, uh, to be challenged, and the willingness to be challenged, the, even the desire to be challenged by and through the calling and the beyondness of of this sense of whatever value or values we're, we're talking about. A capacity, a willingness to be stretched, to stretch oneself. Aspiration grows. Nobility, dignity comes with all this a capacity, an ability, a strength to uh, abide and choose independent of the dominant view, 
the common view of those um, around us in the wider society or in our particular subcultures or sub-traditions. Beauty in all of this, devotion and meaningfulness can all come uh, once the values in this sense start being as incorporated, worked on, fermented in the soul-making dynamic. And that will, of course, like, like working with any image, working with the ideational imaginal in this sense, will start to include um, the perceptions of self, other world, and, er- and the eros itself, our love, our passion for, for the values themselves. All, the, all the, those aspects, self, other world, eros, start to become imaginal, start to gain all this dimensionality, etc., so there's a lot of power in this, in the best sense, a lot of enriching and deepening. And strength comes, and capacity and willingness comes, as I said. A little while ago, well, this was probably more than a year ago, I can't remember, but I was on a, um, a little panel about uh, climate change uh, responses to climate change in, in religious groups. And I was on a little panel with um, one of the other participants and one of the other panelers, persons on the panel, was uh, George Marshall, who some of you will know. Um, He's based in Oxford and he does a lot of research. I'm not sure he's sociology and psychology and uh, such. Uh, Research on uh, messages we put out about climate change, or messages that are out there about climate change and how they impact, and what basically works to make a difference, to, to engage people, and what doesn't work. So it's some really interesting work, and very, um, uh, I find that valuable sort of input. And we were on this panel, and it was his, his turn to give a little presentation, and one of the things that struck me in, in what he was sharing um, was that he'd spoken to an... Islamic community somewhere, or several Islamic communities, and sort of asked them about this, and he had some questionnaires prepared and things. Uh, but what struck me was that um, they said, in in terms of how they want to respond to the challenge of climate change, that they want it to be a jihad, a holy war, and uh, of course take away all the craziness that goes with with that word, unfortunately. Jihad means holy war, holy engagement um, in a noble struggle. And so they didn't want to just, oh, remember to put the recycling out or something like that. They wanted something that was really, genuinely a stretch for them. So we want to feel like we're engaged in that way. So there is both the... um, a certain soul stance of the religious orientation sensibility that actually wants that beyondness, wants that stretch. Um, And it's related to all this business about dimensionality and beyondness and meaningfulness, etc., duty uh, that we have as elements of the imaginal. But there is also, as I said, once the soul-making starts involving the values, once the values become erotic objects, then, then also the willingness and the capacity to stretch and be stretched are there. And the strength to undertake all that starts to come in the being.
said, we can start more and more to stand in our values, for our values, stand by our values. I remember being also part of a a little Dharma group um, uh, talking about climate change and uh, trying to make different creative responses to it. Um, dance, Dharma Action Network for climate engagement and one, one evening we were in a little group and um, a couple of the people were saying that they were a little aversive to protests and engaging in protests or going here or there and being part of a protest around um, inaction uh, against climate change and for action against climate change and the sense that, that they were sense that they had of protest and why they were a bit aversive to it and disinclined was that for them a protest seemed to be a negative thing. I'm protesting against this or that. And uh, they didn't like that negative connotation. It had to do with anger, uh, etc., if I remember. Um, But actually the etymology of that word protest, to protest, means pro is for, and test is related to testify or testament. Um, So it means, um, and certainly from from its Latin roots and through the French, um, often it it originally meant something much more positive. Protest, I testify for something, I bear witness to something. I make a declaration, a testament for pro something, um, and that was that was the original meaning. It had a much more positive connotation, and and implicit in that bearing witness for something um, or to something. I bear witness to something um, only as a consequence of that uh, particular orientation and um, commitment is one bearing witness against something else. So I, I, um, I bear witness for, I, I take a stand, and I testify for the um, need and the importance for immediate prioritizing of action on species loss or climate change or whatever it is. And as a consequence, I'm bearing witness against the inaction, the, the laissez-faire, the... Um, empty words, etc. So all all this uh, moral strength, moral courage, uh, can come uh, when when the relationship with values uh, opens up. Um, and when we said the importance of anchoring and the anchoring needing to have uh, another dimension, a beyond to it. And so that when there's difficulty, there's difficulty either in terms of personal renunciation, difficult choices in one's life, uh, because they're the right thing to do, because they're ethical, but there is cost or whether it's the difficulty of being in uh, a protest or, or a, an action of some kind, uh, an activist action of some kind. We need that strength, we need that steadiness, we need that anchoring. We need that courage and that, that largeness of soul. Or uh, when it's difficulty... Um, 
in terms of uh, as many people, uh, increasingly I hear many people uh, who are doing research, etc., predicting, you know, the species loss and the climate change is happening so quickly that there will be a, uh, all kinds of uh, breakdowns in terms of social structure and our <clears throat> larger structures of civilization. You know, in the not too distant future, I don't know if that's the case or not, or to what extent it's the case. But then there's difficulty on a massive scale, not just a personal difficulty, not just difficulty in this situation, but um, a, a much wider uh, social difficulty. But it's interesting, you know, um, the word crisis. Uh, is at its root uh, from uh, a Greek word, I think, which means decision. So crises are often decision points, points of decision, moments, times of uh, the necessity of decision, this way or that way. And crises, um, difficult as they are, challenging as they are, costly as they are, can often also be uh, doorways, opportunities. In fact, that word is a mentioned I think several times in uh, different talks, opportunity is its root porta, uh, which is door. So a crisis, a a crisis, it's a time for a decision, but it can also be door, uh, opening a door. I go through this door or that door, and a door to what? It's opportunity to practice in the deepest, fullest, widest and sometimes most challenging sense of the word. And you can see this relationship between crises and opportunity, not that we wish crises, not that we want them to come, we're sort of bored when there isn't a crisis, but that you can see this relationship um, in its extreme form, again, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as I mentioned in the talk. Very uh, extreme crisis situation, and it brought out such courage and such uh, moral integrity and steadfastness. Or, as I mentioned also in a previous talk, Viktor Frankl reporting on those among the starving concentration camp inmates at Auschwitz. Those few who would give away their last piece of bread. And uh, in intense uh, crisis situation and it brings out something so profound in humanity, something so beautiful in the soul in that desert, in that ravaged landscape of flower blooms and we can enjoy and be touched by its fragrance its, its perfume, its colour its beauty years and years later and it makes a difference to us so it might be crises at different levels as I said personal um, or, or in the middle of a difficult situation like a protest or an action when it gets a bit hairy or um, or much wider with climate change and species extinction, the possibility of social collapse, societal collapse, um, uh, the collapse of certain structures that we've become very used to in our civilization. 
these might also uh, they present themselves as crises, but they can also offer doorways. So in the, in the midst of the most difficult situation is the possibility of the most beautiful soul expression, the most beautiful soul allegiance, the most beautiful and deep and touching and far-reaching soul stances. So, um, again, I want to quote from Nikolai Hartmann, who points out, quite interestingly, that um, I have to preface this because he uses the word reality and I think we should better use the word real and reality he uses the word um, for we can um, because some confusion about ontology there with different systems of ontology we can substitute the word actuality so in other words um, when a value is Actualize. We talk about the reality of that value when it's actually present, manifested, chosen, etc. So <clears throat> um, the value, the value, the value of that actuality of a value is is immediately evident. In other words, when there's kindness there, when there's justice there, clearly it's valuable. We we know that. We feel it as a value. Uh, whenever or wherever that is the case. However, he continues, the non-actuality of values also has a value. In other words, the absence of a value, the blocking of a value, the um, pervasive blindness to a value that may be around us. The non-actuality of values also has a value. This becomes perceptible as soon as we consider that active intended realization is possible only where a value is non-existent. And that, in addition to that, it is active intended realization in which the higher moral species of value is realized, is actualized. In other words, in a situation where there is no justice, to work towards um, pointing that out and um, supporting the possibility and the actuality of justice to come there. Uh, that initial absence of justice was, was a value in that, ena- it, in that it, it enabled the values of the sensibility, the choice, the action and the actualization of a value. And it's, it's all those, sensibility, um, choice and actualization that that make a moral value. In other words, that active engagement, that doing, that choosing on uh, by a human being is itself valuable. Do you understand? So it's a strange fact that the absence of a value has value because it allows our moral being to engage, to work, to grow. Hence, the value of attainment uh, of a uh, of a value in the world stands in opposition here to the value of attempting the effort, even if the goal is not attained or not even attainable. Again, we're back to that beyondness, and also back to this question of intention being central, as the Buddha pointed out as well. 
in his teachings on karma and sila. So the non-actuality of a value is also a, va- is a, also a value. And so strangely, crises, absences, um, uh, immoral situations, situations of immorality are strangely uh, potentially valuable because they allow us to uh, exercise our moral being through which we grow, through which the soul grows. This is actually uh, echoes uh, teachings uh, from way back in the Zohar and There's a curious quote, it says, There is no good, there is no good so perfect as that which issues out of evil. There is no good so perfect as that which issues out of evil. That's one of those almost poetic lines in the Zohar that can get interpreted in multiple ways. But could it have something to do with this point that I'm trying to make about crisis as opportunity? And the non-actuality of a value having a value, as Hartman says. There's maybe perhaps a relationship also with, you know, we put so much emphasis in the soul-making dharma um, when there's dukkha, of going, being with the dukkha and working on it and having this uh, crucibilic relationship to it that allows soul-making. Sometimes the profundity of the soul-making that comes out of dukkha is... um, you know, well, really worth the effort. Whether that's always the best kind of soul making, whatever that might mean, comes out of dukkha. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say that. <clears throat> There's also um, Adin Steinsaltz, who uh, I think commenting on that uh, Zohar passage. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure, but anyway, he writes somewhere or other. It is only. In a world on the brink of disaster, one where the potential for evil, suffering and ignorance is always at hand, that such values as kindness, compassion, courage and wisdom can be actualized. A paradise, a Garden of Eden world, he writes, would afford little or no opportunity for the exercise of values and for the development of character. Actually, one more passage from uh, Nikolai Hartman. So he's talking here about conflict and um, situations in life. Hopeless, I'll come back to this. Different kinds of conflict, and um, not just conflict of wars or arguing people, but conflict uh, in terms of different choices or the complexity of situations or different parties wanting different things or pulling in different directions or values pulling in different directions etc. And he writes we can speak in a certain sense of conflict as a value Okay, so this is related. In the domain of knowledge, in the domain of um, science and uh, philosophy and other things, in the domain of knowledge problems as values although paler and more restricted, correspond to it. As in knowledge, a problem is a basic value, although it is the opposite of insight. You understand? So, uh, 
We want the inside, but a problem, difficult as it is and hassle as it is, is actually a basic value because it's the opportunity. It's a doorway into insight. It's something that we have to work and wrestle with and digest and assimilate. And out of that um, compost can, can grow something beautiful. Beautiful flowers can grow. So as in knowledge, a problem is a basic value. As in the realm of knowledge, a problem is a basic value, although it's the opposite of insight. So in ethical life, conflict is basic, although it means incompleteness, disharmony, indeed a lack of indubitable value. Conflict is that which keeps discernment and the feeling of value alive and opens up new vistas. So much as we would want simplicity and peace and not to be hassled, and we think we'd want everything to just be hunky-dory and perfect, actually it's a strange situation about this realm of samsara. Conflict is that which keeps discernment and the feeling of value alive and opens up new vistas. Partly because of the complexity of our lives, complexity of situations we find ourselves in, especially, as I pointed out, more and more so in the age of globalization. He continues, moral life is, in general, life in the midst of conflicts. It is concentration upon them, a constructive solution of them through the commitment of the person. And all ignoring of it is a sin, an irrevocable injury to ethical being, even to that of one's own personality. So to withdraw, to uh, put the blinkers on and ignore the complexity of a situation, the conflicts inherent in a situation, the obscurities, the um, incompleteness, the differing demands, even in oneself, let alone within between people around oneself, to ignore all that, he says, is a sin. Strong language. An irrevocable injury to ethical, actually heart, ethical being, even to that of one's own personality. We're somehow injuring our soul when we choose... Um, uh, to kind of ignore conflict and complexity for the sake of simplicity and peace. So as the as all this works together, there's nothing that really uh, comes first, as in the nature of the dependent arising of things. They're all pieces that feed each other. They, values becoming erotic and caught up in the soul-making dynamic, the dimensionality, the beyondness, the meaningfulness, the willingness and capacity to be challenged, stretched, to aspire, the strength, the courage, the devotion, crisis as opportunity, conflict and absence of value, also as, as the ground, if you like, of... Uh, our moral being, the soil out of which uh, our, our, our soul grows, our moral being grows. All this is, is part, uh, all these factors can feed each other. And with that expanding, enriching, deepening, widening our soul's relationship to, to values in this sense, uh, 
there will come in the dimensionality, in the sense of beyondness, there can come, there can come, a sense of the, the divinity of, of values, the divinity of these ideas, as I touched on in the last part, I think. And that possibility. And it's interesting, going back to Plato, and when he writes about virtue, and I was reading an article by... Uh, is her surname, but um, Julia Annas, and she points out she took traces through his works over over many years. Uh, she traces different positions with regard uh, that Plato took um, or presented with regard to the relationship of virtues and divinity, and. Uh, it's, it's quite interesting in that we see similar positions in different traditions of Buddha Dharma. So, one in Phaedo, for instance, um, there's a there's a teaching there, a thrust to the teaching there that is really about the uh, practitioner, the philosopher, um, dying to the world, detaching themselves from the everyday. Uh, concerns and uh, the everyday desires and beliefs, etc. And um, true virtue there does not actually deal with the uh, concerns or the events or the matters of everyday life, but actually is uh, true virtue, uh, she writes, consists in an escape or purification from them. And Socrates in in Theatus, uh, in Plato's text of Theatetus, uh, says human life must unavoidably contain evil. So he says, so we should try to flee from here to there, to to the di- divine realm, away from life, ending rebirth. So we should try to flee from here to there as quickly as we can. And flight is becoming like God to the extent that we can. And becoming like God is becoming just and pious with wisdom. So there's one um, teaching uh, there, in, in one thrust through the, through the writings of Plato, that's this very world-escaping, ending-rebirth kind of um, thrust in which virtue has its place uh, either as a stepping stone to this escape from the world, and this removal from the world, or virtue is identified with being exactly that removal from the world. Uh, so there is this kind of going hand in hand of the movement of transcendence and the the opening to what is transcendent to the world that uh, goes hand in hand in, the, in that particular um, thread of, of Plato's teachings that transcending and opening to what is transcendent to our world goes hand in hand with this kind of regard for our world as uh, and, and the affairs uh, of humanity as insignificant. In later um, dialogues of Plato uh, is a different is a different position pre- is presented. And the idea of the individuals becoming like God is um, is framed as the divine has 
if you like, operates with goodness and as goodness and wants goodness so that when we see aright and uh, when we act and choose and sense in line with the, with goodness we're actually putting ourselves so to speak in the service of or we become part of the unfolding of the divine goodness and the unfolding and the enactment of the divine's intention for goodness in in the world so you get that in the philebus and the timaeus and sometimes in the laws um, the work of the divine reason is to organize things for good uh, anas writes since the divine is good and seeks to spread goodness in the way it orders things, becoming like God thus comes to be construed as aspiring to identify with the goodness-producing works of the divine, which makes it less surprising that this is a characterization of virtue. Virtue continues to be seen um, as imposing rational order on potentially refractory materials like our desires and our obstinateness, obstinateness, yeah. Uh, but this is uh, connected with the divine. So, one is a world tra- a world transcending movement, which regards virtue as either a stepping stone to that transcendence and escaping and disregard of the world, or identifies virtue with that very escaping and disregard of the world. And then in the later dialogues, there's more a sense of virtue our virtue being, if you like, almost an identification with or an instrument of the divine virtue. So you can, can you hear already, there's parallels between the sort of classical um, Pali canon thrust, which uh, I mentioned, I think, near the beginning of the uh, talks on ethics, um, to, to end rebirth, to transcend, to be removed from the world, and whatever care we take with paramis and other dharmas and cultivation uh, of sila, etc., is really um, secondary. It serves the purpose of a springboard or a, uh, an enabling of that transcendence. That's the primary purpose of them. Versus other... Um, uh, interpretations or spins that you get in in Mayana Buddhism, for example, where um, it's possible that the Bodhisattva or the um, the Buddha, certainly a Buddha, certainly, but also Bodhisattva or practitioner through the Buddha nature is expressing, manifesting, radiating, if you like, the uh, Dharmakaya, the body of beautiful qualities of virtues of the Buddha in this world. And of course, um, if we uh, if we practice soul-making in relation to all this, and as we've said in the context of soul-making Dharma teachings, in, in a way, uh, both of those options can uh, can open up for us, but we would certainly expect the second option to open up. Why? Because there is, as as something gets involved um, in the soul-making dynamic, as something becomes uh, an erotic imaginal object for us, in this case the ideational imaginal or through an imaginal figure, 
the values become erotically imaginal for us. Then the self-sense is subsumed into that, becomes imaginal, the world sense, all of it. That our eros itself, our passion itself becomes imaginal. And in that it gains, all that gains dimensionality and divinity. So again, with the soul-making dynamic, there's a possibility for, our, for us to see our virtues, the virtues that our life enacts, plays out, our, our sensibility to them, our choosing them, our courage to enact them. Body, speech, and mind is actually the expression in this world, the refraction in this world of the Buddha nature's virtues, of the Dharmakaya of God's uh, goodness, of the attributes of God. We would expect that perception to become available, that conception to become available as something we can entertain. It's just a sense and an idea that arises naturally through practice. And with all that, other other possibilities uh, start to um, offer themselves, become available. So again, I want to read you a passage from I think it's yes from Hartman. I can find it. And here he writes. Uh, he's talking about how we sense values. And and he says, grasping a moral value is sensing it, or more precisely, being gripped by it. Grasping a moral value is sensing it, or more precisely, being gripped by it. And I was struck, reading that, uh, how interesting I found it, that he put it in the passive. We are gripped by a moral value. For us to grasp the moral value is for it to, for us to be gripped by it. That the ideal moral value, the imaginal, the ide- ideational imaginal, the mor- uh, moral value has some agency on our psyche. Just as we talk about with images, they have autonomy and agency. That's part. Of, that's one of the elements, isn't it? So this being gripped by a value, by the angelic quality of a value, by its autonomy and its independence, this being gripped by um, is the crucial thing for affecting change. Maybe the strength of that grip and the number of people who are um, gripped in that way Uh, is you know significant in terms of uh, developing a, a, a current, a wave, a momentum for political or social change. But it's but it's interesting. Again, we talk when we and we relate this to the elements of the imaginal. When we talk about autonomy of self, of of image and of self, so we never lose our own autonomy. Um, and I think it's uh, uh, you know important to realize we can be um, 
we can grasp a moral value, it grips us, but there's still an element where we will remain free um, to choose in that direction or not, to be in service to that moral value or not. Is, is it the case that there is no free will here? that the moral value uh, utterly um, determines my will and I have no choice but to realize it? Or do I retain some autonomy, some freedom of will? So that's a related question, a whole question of um, freedom of will. But we can begin to sense more and more this... um, Autonomy and agency of of the imaginal as a potential, potential, and all this again is part of uh, the enriching and deepening, dimensionalizing and divinizing of our sense and concept of this uh, this ideational imaginal of of the of the moral values, and it's interesting. And just to mention, um, I was reflecting on, is it the case then that the, the sort of the higher values and virtues, the ones that are more uh, redolent of a divinity, the higher values and virtues, in a way... Um, they're more easily disturbed. They're weaker. Hartman would put it, they're weaker. They're higher, but they're weaker. Um, and they're less popular. They're less commonly realized. But at the same time as all that, they also seem, I, or I wonder, if, they, if those are the ones that elicit the most profound dedication and sacrifice in the relatively fewer people who are devoted to their actualization. In other words, those values that seem um, more noble, um, uh, more more divine, as I said, uh, give rise to, in, in, in those who are sensitive to them, give, seem to give rise to the most profound uh, dedication and sacrifice. And again, could that fact be significant if we're talking, you know, if we then talk about potential system or political system change or political change, social change? So think about people like Martin Luther King, Gandhi, and Mandela, take three sort of almost iconic figures, um, completely um, devoted um, to justice or a huge part of what they did was a, a this uh, de- devotion to justice. Um, but, and they were powerfully influential figures. But I wonder whether um, they had something about their person as well, about their own ethos. They, they were rarely explicit about it or trumpeted it, but it was there. And... Something of their ethos had something of the spiritual and the holy and the noble in it. 
they were um, they had what Hartman calls radiant virtue. I think is is his word for it. This um, radiancy of the being that sort of bestows um, I don't know a spiritual light on on those around one. So there's something um, we could say. Did they? exude or transmit or communicate in their being and in their rhetoric something more than merely the values of justice. They're talking about justice, they're working for justice, but there's something else going on here. And there's other um, situations where there's a need for social justice and other social justice movements where, if you like, the the higher imagination, the sense of higher values uh, has somehow not been ignited, uh, that higher imagination uh, and the imaginal, uh, it's not been captured there. So there's many issues in that predicament, and partly because they might lack a person who, who in their being and in their speaking, um, communicates that, exudes that uh, radiant virtue. I wonder about that. Um, but is it possible, again, if related to um, just what we're talking about, about the, the sense of divinity, that, that with, the, with the values that, or when there's a sense of more divinity, there's, there's, a, there's a deeper uh, and a fuller and uh, more intense devotion to and dedication and willingness to sacrifice to those, val- uh, to those values. And that can come through the value itself, or it can come through a person who, in a way, is a, a channel, or their being, as we talked about when we talked about the self, is, is a refraction of a daemon that embodies that value, or reflection of that. Uh, either, when we th- if we think about uh, that, that, that they're refracting an angel, they're refracting an idea, an ideal, in this sense that we mean, ideational, imaginal. But with the sense of divinity, somehow or other, around that issue, then there's, um, uh, it, becomes, it becomes part of what people are dedicated to, actually. So it's more than just the plain issue of, say, social justice in whatever context it is. It includes that, of course. It never, it never uh, uh, removes itself for that and completely transcends that. But it has other dimensions because other, um, even higher values are wrapped up in it. And they um, exert an attraction on the soul and a, uh, a loyalty in, in the soul that is sensitive to them. Devotion, dedication. So, with all this dimensionality, divinity, sense of all this sense of dimensionality opening up in regard to values, uh, in that possibility, there's also the possibility of um, the, the, the sense of divinity in in the values uh, being opened up, and then that has an effect as, again on choices, on stances, on sensibilities. Or capacities. So this dimensionality is actually, in in certain ways, uh, part of different teachings and different cosmologies. 
So there are some Islamic cosmologies that present a kind of three-tier, um, three-tier picture of the universe, if you like. And I read you a passage from Henri Corbin, and he's writing about the writings of a Shiite philosopher, Qadi Said Kummi, but it describes a certain cosmology. Um, and this is what he's describing is actually quite a common cosmology, again, coming out of the original Platonic ideas and uh, pr- Platonic maps and notions and cosmologies and through the Neoplatonic and into Christianity and Islam and um, Judaism and all, all kinds of um, other philosophies. This is there are three categories um, of universe. First, there is the phenomenal world, a realm where things are perceptible to the senses. So that's the world that everyone would agree on. But then there is the suprasensible world, the world of the soul or angel souls, commonly designated malakut, um, the the place of the mundus imaginalis, the world of the imaginal, whose organ of perception is cognitive imagination. And then thirdly, there is the intelligible world of the pure intelligence, intelligences or angel intelligences, uh, whose organ of perception is the intuitive intellect. So th- this, that kind of, uh, especially the, that three-tiered cosmology was, as I said, very, very common. The lo- the second two tiers are are alien to um, our normal dominant western uh, outlook the second of those the the world of the soul or angel souls the place of the mundus imaginaris of course is one way of framing what we've been talking about a lot with the soul making teachings and now when we talk about the ideational imaginal one way we can think about it one way we can think about it is as corresponding to this third tier this third level of cosmology um here the it's it's such a it's so strange uh, as a concept and as languages we almost don't almost doesn't resonate for most people, I would imagine, in in the modern Western world. The intelligible world of the pure intelligences or angel intelligences, um, whose organ of perception is the intuitive intellect. So our intuitive intellect can perceive these uh, ideas, these ideals, these ideation, the ideational imaginal. And these intelligences or angel intelligences that exist there are also said to be, and this is quite important, are, are also said to be, um, they are unified with their object of intellection. Okay, so this is all strange language. What it means is that the angel or the, or the intelligence, uh, the, the mind, if you like, the consciousness in, in that realm is united with its object. Uh, and so, um, for example, the, uh, the intelligence that knows and meditates on in that realm, um, uh, let's say, justice or kindness, um, is, is itself one with the kindness. There's a, there's, a, there's a unity of subject and object postulated there. 
interestingly, I'll just read a bit more because I find it very interesting. Our philosopher, he means this Kadi Said Kumni, relates these three categories of universe to three categories of space and three of time. There is the obscure, dense time of the sensible world, so our usual sense of time. There is the subtle time of the imaginal world, of the Malakut, of the Mundus Imaginalis. And then there is the even more subtle time, the absolutely subtle time of the world of the intelligence, the world of the, what we might call the ideational imaginal. And um, it's quite involved, he, sa- he says a bit more, but all of them uh, come from, all these worlds open up um, from the energy which is sometimes designated as nafas rahman the breath of the merciful one. The breath of the merciful one, otherwise God, Allah, uh, is is what opens up and keeps in existence these uh, these levels of world, of universe. Sometimes it's called that, the breath of the merciful one. Sometimes it's called the primordial cloud, Allah. And then he writes, having established this initial schema, our philosopher is now in a position to conceive the reality of events and forms which, while not ceasing to be events and forms, possess a time and a space that are in no way those of the sensible world to which we are accustomed exclusively to relate our notions of event and form. In other words, we usually think of event and form as being in in our world, and we say this happened on June the 14th at this time over there, and this... uh, this form, I saw this form, or this event happened, or whatever. But with this scheme, there's then the possibility of events and forms uh, that happen at other levels, in other times, uh, in another time frame, if you like, another dimension of time, uh, another another kind of space than what we're used to in our sensible world. So again, there's this dimensionalizing that doesn't, it, there's not just a duality between form and formless. There's different levels of formation. Actually, I'll just write, read a bit more because there exists between there exists between these three categories of universe a certain number of essential relationships in that each higher universe is the cause of the one below it and contains, in a manner more subtle and elevated, the totality of universes below it. So, in some way, uh, the Mundus Imaginaris contains uh, or, and corresponds, as correspondences um, between the Mundus Imaginaris and our world, that everyone would agree on, the world of sensible physical phenomena. Moreover, he continues, while thus containing and enveloping the totality of the universes below it, each higher universe is also the esoteric aspect, the hidden aspect of this totality. It's hidden inner aspect or center. So the esoteric hidden aspect of this world are, is the world of angels, of the angels, of the images. As we say, we look at this beautiful flower on, on my desk and it's, uh, it's gorgeous in its form and colour, etc., in its materiality, and it's also refracting, reflecting, uh, reflecting, echoing, mirroring, expressing, corresponding to uh, something on another level, in the mundus imaginalis, as is myself and yourself. 
daemon refracted, we echo, mirror, refract, reflect, express, manifest uh, something uh, in the angelic realm. We have, uh, and, and the whole world is, is like that, potentially like that. There's a, there's a complication here or, that I think is important and I won't go into now in that, um, <clears throat> well, two things actually to say. One is that in, in the particular cosmology he's talking about, um, he's talking, it's almost like each person has or creates their own universe. So the mundus imaginalis has this um, objectivity to it, and yet my mundus imaginalis is different than yours, and uh, correspondingly with the other. So there's a personal nature to this cosmology. It's almost as if there are different, uh, different universes opening up with each, each person, if you like, at their center. And yet there's still an objectivity there. First point. Second point is that usually, or often, what goes with that kind of three-tier cosmology is a hierarchy. And uh, some of the dangers we talked about in, in what that can do in terms of attitudes to the material phenomenal world. Um, I'm not sure that danger is uh, automatically implied or, or consequent, but... Uh, it it might be um, there or not there, even if there is postulated a hierarchy. In other words, the level of the ideas, the intelligences and their objects of intellection um, is higher than the mundus imaginaris, which is higher in the hierarchy than the phenomenal sensible physical world. Um, even if that hierarchy is there, it may or may not lead to denigration. It may actually increase the veneration, the devotion to the sense of beauty of the phenomenal physical world. By giving it that dimensionality, by giving it that rootedness, by giving it that beyondness and mystery, all that. Or or it may not. We're also free to entertain a conception that doesn't hierarchize, if that's a verb, doesn't place those three levels in any kind of hierarchy. So it's almost like we can regard what we're trying to open up now as the ideational imaginal. We regard that whole realm or sphere of ideas, ideals, as uh, not necessarily higher than the world of images, the mundus imaginalis. We could regard them as non-hierarchical realms that open up for perception, for experience, or we can regard them hierarchically. That's part of our freedom of uh, conception, freedom to entertain different conceptions. But where there is um, soul-making in relation to values, where the soul-making dynamic, as I said, starts to open, starts to subsume and draw into its process the whole um, uh, realm of the ideas, of, of values, and values as ideas, ideals, where there's eros of values, something like these kinds of senses of, of the values, of the moral values as divine ideas, ideals. I use those words, as I said, interchangeably, as they have been in history. Um, 
something like those senses, something like uh, um, that will emerge out of the sense of dimensionalizing, some kind of sense of their autonomy, some kind of sense of their agency, their pull, their demand, their call, our duty to them, etc. All that will open up. The possibilities are uh, the particular particulars of the possibilities, the way it opens up for each soul or different times in practice, etc., in life. Um, that might vary, but something like this, I think, will be inevitable once the values are um, caught up for us in the soul-making dynamic, once we have a soul-making erotic relationship with them. And then we can sense ourselves um, in our meditations, in our life, in our being, in our sensibility, in our acts and choices and stands as participating in that um, divine sphere, realm of ideas. And in participate, we participate in this or that value, like this or that moral value. And there's a nobility that comes with that. There's a grace and a privilege. It gives our life a sense of beauty, nobility, along with everything else. Nobility is a word we may come back to because uh, Nikolai Hartman uses it in a particular way and that's not the way I'm using it right now. So we may come back to that, what he means by that because it's quite interesting. But uh, I mean more that the participation in, in values in this way, the sense of participation uh, comes with the soul-making participation being an element of the imaginal, an element also then of the ideational imaginal. And it... And it uh, brings with it, uh, among other gifts, among other graces, a sense of nobility. Now, noble is also a word, of course, that we have in the in the Dharma tradition. Noble truths and uh, uh, noble ones, etc. Arya is the Pali. And uh, I don't know, there is some relationship between Arya and Aryan and uh, somehow with the... the, the, the uh, the peoples that traveled over to India, emigrated from India, uh, from Iran. And perhaps it might have had some ethnic or even racist implications as they were purer or, or better, I don't know. And in our culture, in English, nobility also has a kind of class <coughs> association with it. But I mean it more in its soul sense, in, in the nobility of, of a being, of a soul, of a disposition, of an ethos. And to me that's very much part of the uh, territory uh, that opens up for us and the flavor of soul that opens up in our self-sense as we uh, allow the soul and encourage the soul to engage with, with higher values, moral values in, in these ways. And so, so I remember teaching... Uh, quite a few years ago uh, with a teacher, colleague, and she was giving a talk and I, I was obviously there present and I, she, some part of it, she started talking about this word noble as in noble truths and noble noble ones, etc. that the Buddha talked, used quite a lot in, in his teaching in the Pali Canon. And, and I just can't, I can't relate to that word and and she seemed quite embarrassed uh, about it, or embarrassed even about talking about it, or 
or imagining that it might be something that had anything to do with herself or that she might grow into. Uh, I can't remember what the larger point uh, she was making was. But I was struck by that because uh, for me it's a very... um, it's a very beautiful word. It captures quite well certain qualities of soul and directions and alignments and devotions of soul and ethos. And I think um, where there is soul making, um, it will bring a sense of nobility. And where there is this kind of soul making relationship with the virtues and with, with moral values, with the ideational, imaginal of moral values, um, it will bring that inevitably. It will weave it in, it will open it out. So all this, you know, uh, asks quite a lot of us, as as, uh, as is often the case with soul-making teachings. Um, and as I think I mentioned at one point, you know, there's there's often, not always, and it's complicated, so I don't want to oversimplify it, but there's often a relationship with how um, how much we are sort of tied up in in knots and in the pain of, let's say, the inner critic or uh, an anxiety about ourselves with regard to what other people think, there's often um, a relationship between how strong that is, self-anxiety and inner critic, and an inverse relationship between that and our capacity for virtue and for even having a sensibility to moral values and virtues, especially the higher ones. So I remember I saw an ad on TV, it was for some car, and you know, like most car ads, it involves someone driving and presenting presenting that person and they're driving in some kind of um, almost com- comical way. Uh, to, to me, it's like uh, as if it's, uh, this car is going to make you wonderful and make your life like this, and you're going to experience yourself like this because of that car. And the music or the strap line or part part of it was dance like no one is watching. I think it was from a song and that was playing. Dance like no one is watching. And the whole sort of um, tenor or presentation or or, or, uh, thrust of this ad was somehow this, I think it was a woman driving a car and sort of on her own, driving alone, and it was something to do with independence and freedom, freedom to be herself. So it was using the allure, the sort of front of individual um, self-expression as, as, as a sort of uh, uh, something that in our attraction to it, we would then, by association, be attracted to that car, I suppose was the theory. But actually, dance like no one is watching was actually more about acceptance of self, uh, relief from the anxiety, and relief uh, from the anxiety over what others think of me. Do they think I'm okay? Now, if the if the car ad had presented it uh, as more truthfully, that dance like no one is watching. Why do I care if if someone's watching? It's because um, I care what they think. I'm anxious about what they think. But that concern, that self-anxiety, is um, at the very least uh, 
or at most it's less than uh, individual self-expression. The latter, you know, that individual self-expression as something, as a value, um, sounds better. We think it's a better concern. But this was conflating the two. And uh, that, of course, is is part of our problematic con- conception and relationship with and sense of individuality and individuality as a as a sort of um, sh- shrunken kind of value in our wider society because we don't really have a, a, a wider, deeper, richer sense of individuality. So, so it's wrapped up in it is this social anxiety in the critic, the concern with do they think I'm okay? What will others think of me? And as I said, there's a relationship between this anxiety over self-appearance to others and sometimes there's a relationship between that and a lack of central concern for virtue. So there's this kind of reciprocal relationship. Um, The more self-anxiety in that sense, the more inner critic the uh, less virtue, uh, care for virtues, in their breadth and in their height. And the inner critic, when it gets a real grip, can often even prevent a kind of ethical sensitivity. But vice versa. Sometimes when we start um, getting more of this ideational, imaginal sense of, of values when we have soul-making relationship with virtue and we give attention to that and that grows in our soul, actually the self-anxiety goes down, diminishes. Partly because um, the self gets subsumed into the soul-making process and we start to sense ourselves as image. Because that kind of social self-anxiety is related to not sensing the self as image. Not having a sense of dimensionality to the self, of divinity, archetypal or imaginal roots and origins to the self. So much as um, Ruth King, uh, Catherine reported that Ruth King, an African-American Dharma teacher, was... um, talking, observing to Catherine, saying it seems like so many uh, Westerners have very little roots at all. There's very little sense of roots. There's all kinds of social and historical reasons for that. Uh, Looking at, she's talking about white people in, in, I think, in the US, but maybe also in Europe, having very little roots. And there's a possibility of actually having a whole other kind of root the root in the sensing oneself as being rooted in the divine, having imaginal roots, imaginal origins. When we don't have that, we have, again, no anchor. We're blown this way and that. We're so vulnerable to, fragile in the face of what other people think. So there's this culture of individuality that's an impoverished, shrunken, narrow, uh, and uh, not and shallow individuality. It has no roots or very little roots, or poor roots, impoverished roots, or its roots are in poor soil, flimsy soil, dry soil. And we can open up those um, 
roots, it gives us all kinds of um, strengths and capacities it opens. And there's, as I said, a reciprocal relationship, and the causality, the dependency goes both ways. It's in this inverse relationship between care for ethics and um, self-anxiety. And again, part of what we need, part of what, um, let's put it the other way first, part of what comes out of that strength, out of that rooting, out of the whole um, involvement of the of values in the soul-making dynamic and the, and the uh, corollary sensing of the self as imaginal, allows actually uh, what we might call healthy guilt, or what I prefer to call remorse, just to... Just to um, differentiate between um, guilt, which we usually is, is really not helpful, as I pointed out in one of the earlier talks. It actually allows us to experience healthy guilt or remorse. Hartman makes the point. Nikolai Hartman is uh, uh, um, he's quite uh, makes the point quite strongly that actually healthy guilt and remorse is necessary for our moral being. So again, let me read you a passage um, where he says, so I'm making the point here about what's demanded of us in our relationship to values, in our uh, exploration of morals for a wide and deep and rich and beautiful relationship with moral being, but also what might grow out of um, the, the soul-making starting to include and involve moral values. So he writes, um, there is a will to responsibility, even to guilt, as as regards one's own conduct. There is a repugnance to the presumption of exculpation, of being rid of guilt, as implying a repudiation of guilt. It is not as if one wanted guilt as such, one would be glad not to have it, But once we are laden with it, we cannot allow it to be taken away without denying our selfhood, our personhood. A guilty man has a right to carry his guilt. He must refuse deliverance from without. To retain his guilt is valuable for him despite its oppressive load. It signifies for him the retention of his personality, of his personhood, the preservation and recognition of his freedom, his moral freedom, his freedom of will. With his guilt, he would lose a greater moral good, his manhood. In other words, if he lost his guilt in that way, he just uh, ignored it or zapped it, he, he would actually lose something else. He would lose his personhood. In taking upon himself his own deed and his guilt, in asserting his responsibility, in his sincere willingness to carry it, there is a moral pride in the free deed which speaks out. It is the majestic right to manhood, let's say personhoodness. It is the majestic right to personhood, the foundation upon which all moral being and non-being rest. To surrender it is moral meanness, betokening incapacity to be free. He who... Uh, well, we can stop there. Um, Actually, the presumption, he continues, the presumption in washing away guilt, in discharging it, the admission of, quote, mitigating circumstances, 
is at bottom a moral disenfranchisement and a degradation of the man. Um, so it's a strong teaching there. Um, and again, it's difficult for us in our culture of inner critic and the pain that that causes, and the, the pandemic of that. It's difficult for us to kind of recognize uh, the, the place and the necessity, perhaps, of of guilt, or say remorse. I admit that I uh, that I acted poorly there, that I chose uh, not in line with my highest aspirations, etc. He also makes the point that a conflict of values inheres in the concept of guilt is not to be overlooked. So basically he's saying, Oh, guilt's an interesting phenomenon, because he says guilt is and remains a disvalue in man. No one, so long as he is guiltless, could wish for it. But the astonishing thing is that when a man has once burdened himself with it and bears it, it gains the character of a value which contradicts the value of innocence. So there's something, again, no one would want guilt, it's a disvalue. It's something we don't want, a disvalue. But once it's there and we can open to it in this way, what I prefer to call remorse, um, once we op- accept it, uh, hold it, and work with it, um, and t- take on its lessons, are taught by it, it actually has the character of a value, which is interesting. We become more mature, we become, uh, our moral being grows through it. So is there a necessity for uh, the self? Is there a necessity for the soul? For, for, for a certain kind of relationship with, with guilt or remorse? Might it also be a necessary uh, a necessity in our relationship with such difficult issues um, and such fundamental issues in that they question our fundamental orientations, priorities, and perspectives on uh, almost everything, but fundamentally on the world, and on humanity's place in the world? Is there a necessity um, for remorse and guilt in, in our relationship with, with issues like climate change and species extinction? Just as there is, and many people have pointed out, there's the necessity for grief. And some people, and myself included, would say there's a necessity for anger, for righteous indignation. And maybe there's a necessity for, for guilt. I remember uh, Catherine leading a guided meditation on one of our soul-making retreats, and she had seven stages, I think it was, uh, we, we had to choose something to become image for us. And uh, maybe it was something, no, it was, it was on Sensing with Souls, it was something in the world that we start to then, uh, she was guiding us through ways we could um, support uh, the possibility of sensing that thing with soul. And I chose an apple tree that I had in my garden. And one of the stages that she went through, I can't remember how she worded it, but had to do with um, either asking forgiveness for or feeling a remorse um, for how we have looked on that thing in the past without soul 
and so not seen its holiness, not um, conceived of or sensed its um, uh, divinity, its uh, dimensionality, etc. And that, particularly it was that strand that at that point that really touched me in, in what she was guiding us through. So even with this apple tree, which I very much enjoyed and loved, um, I could kind of feel pregnant in that stage um, my own and um, and also humanity's kind of impoverished, shrunken, narrowed and um, shallowed relationship with nature, with the things of the world. And, and my, allowing my heart and my soul to be touched by it. it felt very beautiful, very important. But in relation to issues like climate change and species extinction, massive, massive issues, fundamental issues in so many ways, might um, grief, anger, and also guilt, uh, in, in this sense that Hartman is talking about, remorse, be, be part of healing part of allowing us greater strength, greater uprightness, greater capacity for courage, for action, and a greater just capacity of heart to hold all this, um, uh, the, the depths of emotion. And if we think about you know, the actuality of our lives and our complex lives, um, whether they're in a much wider social sense or global sense or just even in a personal sense, sometimes the structure of situations um, creates uh, or presents to us choices between what basically, if we look at them in terms of values, choices between um, different values. If I do this, I'm prioritizing and validating and choosing in line with this value, but I'm neglecting this one, and I'm transgressing, if you like, a commitment to that to that other value. Opposing values, we hopefully we'll come back to this, opposing values um, present themselves to us, and we have to choose. So, so it, might be, it might be just in a very personal situation where it's a matter of um, truthfulness, to a beloved one, but one knows that that truth will hurt them. Notice I didn't say harm, which is one of the Buddha's uh, stipulations about uh, right speech, that it's not harmful. But hurt is not harm. That a person might find this truth that I'm sharing or telling them about or whatever, they might find that hurtful, may not be harming to them. It might just hurt. Life hurts sometimes. Truth hurts sometimes. But it might be that kind of choice. What do I? What's my loyalty to in that kind of situation? The truthfulness, or the non-hurting, the kindness, the compassion. Um, there's not a formulaic answer to that. Each situation is diff- different. Each situation is new. Has a different subtle particularity and nuance to it. Um, Or it might be in a wider social situation. So, for example, with the Extinction Rebellion um, actions, um, they disrupt, uh, to a certain extent, they disrupt the sort of business-as-usual functioning of at least portions of a city or society for a certain amount of time. 
it blocks traffic, some people can't get to work, some people are trying to go there, this, this place or that place, they're delayed, etc. Or if you want to uh, disrupt Heathrow's functioning in protest at the uh, building of a third runway, it will disrupt and it will upset a lot of people. And so one has an allegiance to a certain extent to not wanting to um, cause upset, not wanting to inconvenience. Uh, and on the other hand, one has an allegiance to, um, to the need for action and uh, waking up with regards to climate change and species extinction. And so these two values are in opposition. And myself and some friends as well, when we were considering getting involved in Extinction Rebellion actions, um, this was part of what came up. Certainly it came up for me and I think for others as well. I'm not sure about um, upsetting people. I'm not sure is it ethical to do that, etc. Let alone the possibility of a kind of backlash for upsetting people. So there's no real escape from this in life, this um, fact of uh, we will be culpable in one way or another in situations. Even when we're choosing a certain value, we can be, we are often um, culpable because there's a, a as kind of another value in the situation that in choosing whatever we choose, we're neglecting the other one. And so that happens um, a, a lot in our lives, if you reflect on it. And I hope to come back to that point if I have time. But again, let me read a passage on, uh, by Hartman on that very point. Um, So, he's talking about this kind of thing, these kinds of situations. It is inherent in the essence of such moral conflicts that in them value stands against value and that it is not possible to escape from them without being guilty. That's what I just said. Here it is not the values as such in their pure ideality which are in conflict. That's something we'll come back to. Um, uh, But he says, the conflict arises from the structure of the situation. This makes it impossible to satisfy both at the same time. Um, important point, important um, for our m- maturity in, in regard, in, 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 in looking at the whole sphere of ethics. Our moral maturity, also our moral intelligence, if we can, we have to realize this is the case. If I'm trying to... Um, to wend a line, to travel a path where I'm guilt-free, maybe that's a pie-in-the-sky delusion. I will be confronted very often in life, in small ways and in large ways, with, with situations where I have to choose one thing over another. Not to choose is a sin, in Hartman's words. It's a withdrawing of my soul's engagement with life, with the sphere of morality. It's, 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 it's a refusal to um, participate in, in, in life and in, in values. It's a, it's a refusal uh, to grow my soul. 
but to engage and, and think I can be guilt-free is also just uh, lacking in a kind of mature uh, understanding of the nature of uh, our life, the nature of samsara, if you like, the nature of moral situations. So, it's asking quite a lot. We, we can be given quite a lot through the soul-making uh, dynamic, as I said, as it s- starts to subsume and involve values. But it's asking, all this is asking quite a lot, as, as does all you know, deep and wide practice, and certainly soul-making practices. And is part, is part of what's necessary also the kind of training in regard to our heart, and our emotional capacity, um, and our emotional awarenesses, um, we put so much emphasis on in the soul-making dharma, is that also a kind of necessary uh, prerequisite, or at least part and parcel, of our, our um, ethical training? So the ethos and emotional training are, are linked. So it's that our capacity to... Um, feel certain emotions and difficult emotions like guilt, like grief, like anger. And sometimes, particularly with grief, it can be it can be heartbreaking. Do I have? Uh, is the heart big enough? Have I made my heart big enough? Have I somehow opened the capacity of the heart that it can hold all that? Am I able uh, to discern and disentangle the different strands of emotion that might arise as a kind of just what feels like just an overwhelming and confusing emotional complex? Can I see, oh, oh there's this emotion, there's that emotion. Like, can I just kind of see, ah, oh, there's, there's a few different things in there. And can I focus on perhaps each one in turn as well as on the whole complex? Can I, uh, do I have clarity as well as capacity? And, and that takes a real skill to develop that. So, um, talk about that at other times. Do I have the ability to prioritize certain um, emotions? For example, so even my love for this value, can I um, prioritize that? Can I focus on um, this emotion and actually stay steady with this uh, strand of emotion? Or stay focused, as we were talking about with, when talking about guilt earlier in, in the earlier talk, actually focus on that deeper current of my devotion, of my alignment, of my love, of that, this or that value. Can I dwell in that? So all these um, aspects of what we might call training of the heart or or, um, the emotional awarenesses and skills, they are maybe part and parcel necessary, prerequisite even to our our, uh, further growth in terms of our ethos, our, our relationship with ethics. And all this takes a lot of sensitivity. Actually, the um, the soul's sensitivity to values and to virtues um, is something that, again, remember reading. I think it was a Hartman quote that, that said, "You know, it's not everyone has equal sensitivity of their soul to moral values or to the range of values or to certain higher values, etc." 
Um, but we can take care of, we can love our soul's sensitivity to values and virtues. And we can nourish it and seek to uh, support its growth, its widening, its deepening, its heightening. And our sensitivity to values, to virtues, um, allows us, to the degree that we're sensitive to them, is the degree to which our participation in them is supported. So it starts with a sensitivity, with the soul being stirred, the soul feeling resonance and feeling that beauty. And that, again, through the eros that's natural there, it draws us in to participation in them. And that soul sensitivity to values, to virtues, in their breadth, in their height, in their depth, is itself a virtue. A sensitivity to virtues is itself a virtue. You understand? So we can, when we kind of survey or cast our, cast our eyes about us, we can, I wonder sometimes, if there are just rarer sensitivities that some kinds of the sensitivity to, uh, you know, not killing is, I mean, there's so much different kinds of killing going on in the world, but basically as an ethical sensitivity, it's quite uh, common. Not stealing, whatever. But other, other sensitivities seem much more rare, much more, uh, much less common to come across in people. So, one example was, um, or we could ask, you know, for example, um, when I was talking about, uh, for example, that Polly Higgins interview, and I'm sure she didn't feel it, but something just happened in the flow of the interview that the sort of perspective and stance of, um, if you like, the value of the earth in and for itself so not as a support for human beings' survival and prosperity. But that, that value in itself seems rarer. So are there higher and more rarely sensed values? I think, I think there are. And how much is that rarity uh, with regard to those values and the kind of the sens- sensitivity to them, how much is that a function of historical conditioning? and the partiality of moral vision in any culture. And how much is it trainable, and how much is it um, a sort of innate, if you like, to this or that particular soul, and less so to another soul. Um, so to me these are interesting questions, and important questions, especially when we start considering um, you know, this whole idea, the possibility of what would it mean to open up again avenues of moral education, which seem to have gone from our culture, as I pointed out uh, earlier in the talk. So caring for and valuing the ethical rights of the earth, of species, of ecosystems, as I talked about before, it's a different ontology involved there. And um, in terms of the ethics and the ethical care and, and sensibility, uh, that may be more rare and, relatively speaking, more unusual. 
Um, there may be a number of reasons. Maybe it's the, as, as pointed out, the relative dilution of uh, our perception, of, of the relative dilution of the effects of our personal actions and choices in the, in the sort of mass web of effects of, of, uh, the effect of others' choices. It may have something to do also with just the decline in the recognition of virtue itself as important alongside efficacy in the ethical life, especially when uh, the situations get very complex or seem hopeless or, or whatever. We touched on that before. But also, again, related is the rarity of um, a, a metaphysics that supports recognizing the earth or an ecosystem or a species as uh, valuable or as divine, over and above the sort of sum of its individual members' uh, sufferings, this, this orca, as opposed to the species or whatever. I was wondering too, um, along these lines, what, 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 you know, why, why is it that some people seem more steadfast in their commitment and more attuned to um, certain moral principles than others? Uh, what's going on there? And was struck by. Greta Thunberg, who, when I first read about her, she was still just sitting on the steps in uh, outside the government building in the Parliament building in in, um, in Stockholm, um, and, and read about. I was very struck by her sort of lonely vigil there, uh, solitary vigil there, and her determination, her steadfastness, her will. Her, and one of the things the article said. Um, was that she had Asperger's, she, so she was on the what's called the autistic spectrum. And I started wondering about that, and wondering whether, um, you know, one of the characteristics of Asperger's is, is that, as I understand it, is that someone who has Asperger's is not so relationally empathic or sensitive, or not so attuned to or impacted by uh, what another person, what another person is feeling uh, or expressing in their facial manner or gesture or tone, emotional tone. So they don't pick up on those cues or they don't feel such a sensitivity. And um, it may be that for such a person, a person who leans a bit, even leave aside the pathology of the word Asperger's, just um, someone who um, leans um, more towards principles and abstract. So someone with Asperger's might then, in the absence of such a pull of what other people think and the cues they're getting back from other people and pissing this person off or, or whatever it is, that uh, they're actually able to be more steadfast and more clear um, and keep their sight on uh, principles and seeming abstractions like virtues and values that they exert more of a felt demand of duty on them than the emotions of persons who are in front of me, who are getting angry because we're blocking the traffic or uh, angry because they don't like what we're saying about what we think needs to happen or what they need to give up or what humanity needs to renounce or whatever. While for more, uh, most people who are not so-called Asperger's, um, uh, there's still some sensitivity to the impact and demands of 
so-called abstract or principles like values, um, are actually more impacted, more sensitive to, more swayed by, um, uh, and and actually maybe more empathic to other persons. So that um, then it might translate that for some people the the way into uh, this soul-making with regard to values and the whole approach to ethic here may be more through an imaginal figure who is a person with whom they are in relationship and implicitly then they're in relationship with the values bound up with them. Remember, values is uh, an element of the imaginal. Um, and that uh, that way in through an imaginal figure and the values implicit or explicit there may be more powerful in affecting uh, bringing about moral allegiances, choices, behavior in their actual life. So there may be differences in, 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 in people in terms of whether one gravitates more easily, feels a clarity and a pull in relationship more with principles, ideas, ideals, values, virtues, than with um, people, imaginal or actual. Um, there may be a difference in what it implies about the uh, possibilities or the, the course, the particular um, path of moral training, moral development. don't know, interesting. Um, you know, a lot of Jesus' moral power and influence come from the stories uh, in the Gospels um, for many people, as much and probably more so for, for most people than Christian dogmatics, you know, theology, and thou shalt, whatever. There's something very touching in the personhood um, of those stories of Jesus, which for a lot of people, that's what carries the uh, moral said, power and influence um, of, of the Christian message. But there is this possibility, for I think for everyone, and may, maybe there's personal sort of um, predispositions and predilections, but for some, for many, the relationship with and the pull of what seem may seem to others like abstractions, like the values, etc., um, virtue and virtues and beauty and ideals, that can be soul making as we've been talking about. So is there a kind of in a way, to some extent and at some level a kind of pull in opposite directions uh, between let's say ethical ideas and on the one hand an a relational empathy, personal empathy on the other, or with between principles and personal sensitivities on the other. I don't know, it's just a thought. Um, of course, uh, you know, one could be, uh, I, I don't know, uh, an SS officer, a Nazi SS officer, and um, perhaps uh, they're, probably most of them are, fairly psychopathic, I imagine, but um, and in that sense had very little empathy to persons, but may have an allegiance to some kind of principle or uh, some kind of order or some kind of hatred. So it's not simple. It still needs directing in the, in the right way. And so, But for most people, there'll probably be this double possibility, um, both through the imaginal and, um, and through the ideational imaginal. And uh, as part of the 
complexity, as I said, of our moral life, the actualities of our moral life, there's often a call, a, a tug from both directions. So there's a kind of fluid and sensitive balance and conversation of allegiances to principles um, and to um, what we might call immediate empathy. Just as I was giving the example of if you're um, taking part in an Extinction Rebellion uh, action or whatever and people around you are not part of that are getting pissed, some of the people are getting pissed off. Maybe both um, these are, are part of a good life, the beautiful life. Both they're both virtues. So obviously, if we were completely uh, had no um, empathy or sensitivity or attunement to others, whoever is in front of us and how they're feeling, that that in itself would not be a virtue; it would be a, a disvirtue. But this possibility, as I said, to um, widen and extend and heighten our sensitivity to values and the possibility to grow in our relationship to values, to moral values, in the sense of deepening our commitment to them, deepening our prioritizing of them. Uh, This all is is possible and, I think, um, very beautiful. So Hartman, also, let me read another passage. He's talking here about two Greek virtues, uh, which I actually don't know what the difference is, because as far as I knew, they both get translated as wisdom in English, Sophia and Sapientia. Um, But I'll read you the passage. It's not so important about what what those words specifically mean. I want to read you the passage about... um, the passage where he describes a kind of maturity and depth uh, of and beauty of a, a relationship, a deep relationship with with moral values. To the wise man, uh, to the wise person, the person with Sophia or Sapientia, I'm not sure which he's talking about. To the wise man, the domination of values in their ideality the domination in Platonic phrase of moral ideas, yeah, so this ideation on that, imaginal, is something natural. To the wise man, the domination of values is something natural. In other words, it dominates a person's life. It dominates a person's soul, their sensibility, their orientations. In this sense, Plato was right when he joined this virtue to the beholding of ideas. And indeed, in such a way that a man returning from the vision of ideas, so this is something that Plato talked about as a kind of meditation, that one can, we'll come back to that in a second, that one can kind of um, meditate on these ideas, on the purity of the ideas, one can enter that sphere or realm of the ideational imaginal. In this sense, Plato was right when he joined this virtue to the beholding of ideas, and indeed in such a way that a man returning from the vision of ideas sees in their light everything which appears to him in life. The wise man carries into all the relations relations of life the standards of value which he possesses in his spiritual taste. So you meditate, you have that um, direct encounter, if you like, with what might seem to be a kind of abstract notion, this ideational, imaginal um, moral value of this or that. 
and carries that back into life and it colours, it shapes it, uh, our perspective, our per- perceptions of our lives and of the things in our life and the relations of our life. And it orients us. He saturates his outlook upon life with them. This domination of values does not come to him by way of reflection or through knowledge of commandments, but is an immediate, intuitive, emotionally toned domination, which from the centre of moral perception penetrates all unobserved and impulsive excitations and is therefore already alive in them. So, there's something very beautiful in that to me. I don't know if you can hear it too. It's not something we sort of um, come to by way of logical deduction. It's not that just we're just obeying commandments or obeying the five precepts or whatever. But there's something immediate, intuitive, emotionally toned, as he said. Something in our heart and souls is touched, is in contact with um, the ideational, imaginal of a moral value. And that spreads out into our life, into our sensibility, into our perceptions, into our uh, choices and actions. So with all this and these kinds of the possibil- these kinds of possibilities and relationships, um, uh, again, actually, I keep reading Hartman here, but uh, he writes some very important things. I think uh, man, again, this is gender language, but man, as the product of conditions, is neither good nor bad. However much disposition, upbringing, and milieu may smooth or make difficult the way to moral goodness, he can only become one or the other, become good or bad, insofar as he enters the conflicts of life and makes decisions in their midst. So we have to engage, and that's part of our um, assimilating, digesting, working on, fermenting uh, moral values in our being and through our lives. He continues, moral goodness is realized in him only as the value of rightly directed behavior. In this sense, everyone builds entirely his own moral being for good or bad. Everyone builds entirely his own moral being for good or bad. I was struck by that last phrase, building one's own moral being. As part, I would say, of building one's soul, as part of soul making, building, making, right? Because values are an element of the imaginal, and because there's the possibility of these ideas, ideals, being um, becoming part of the erotic imaginal, we work on this part of building, of making our souls, part of soul making. Um, one more short passage from Hartman uh, connected to that. He says, man is never morally completed. With his moral growth, he constructs himself, again, making, building, soul making. With his moral growth, he constructs himself. Even without intending it, he makes himself the object of actualization. 
soul-making, making our soul, souls, uh, growing the beauty of our soul. The art of soul-making. He continues, he achieves his own synthesis in his preoccupation with the manifold values of life by increase of understanding and participation in evaluating the world relating to the world through the lens of moral values and values. In evaluating the world, he succeeds in transforming his own unique, irrevocable life into a general harmony, a real symphony of values. So there's something plastic here, something creative, something artistic, something also unique to each of us. We may come back to that in terms of personal differences and inclinations among the uh, alignments and allegiances to different values in the in the val- in the firmament of moral values. So let's just say something about meditation possibilities here, and I've just touched on one when we talked about Plato. Um, but we can delineate three possibilities, um, all all there as avenues available to us, and sometimes um, m- can move from one to the other, uh, or it slips from one to the other, or uh, they kind of overlap. But let's delineate three um, in regard to sort of meditation on our moral values. One is just. Uh, is just meditating on an image anyway, because, as we said, implicit in an image is is some kind of value and some kind of moral value as well. Um, it's an element of the imaginal, right? It's one of those 28 nodes of the lattice. So that in meditating on an image, um, there's so many uh, different aspects of that imaginal constellation that we can, at times, you know, lean in, lean into focusing or tuning to this or that aspect as we choose or one strikes us more. But one can um, tune to or be touched by the aspect of value, the the, uh, value that is implicit and woven into us with a specific imaginal figure. And we can resonate with that. Let our beings, let our souls and hearts and bodies and that's really important, the energy body, as, as always, resonate, our, our total being resonating with that strand of the imaginal constellation, the strand of, of this particular value that's coming. We can feel it. Um, we can uh, put ourselves in relationship with, in a resonant uh, relationship, dialogical relationship with that value through being in relationship with that imaginal figure. And we can also sometimes, as I, uh, as sometimes happens spontaneously, or, or or can happen deliberately, as I think I um, outlined in part of the imaginal series, we can actually enter the imaginal figure and become them, or feel what it is like to be them, see the world through their eyes, experience their kind of sensibility, and so and through that experience the world through. Um, uh, with a kind of sensibility attuned to or prioritizing this or that particular value. So that's one possibility, is just in the in the uh, range of possibilities 
uh, of strands to pursue, to tune with, to focus on um, in in meditating with an imaginal figure. There's a second possibility, um, uh, working with an imaginal figure, and uh, their form begins to fade. The figure uh, itself begins to fade, and one is left with just the sort of essence of their being, uh, if you like. Um, In a way, one is left with the ideational imaginal, the idea. So, um, remember on uh, retreat, I think it was tending the holy fire, and someone reporting a meditation. They were, they had as an imaginal figure Aslan, the lion uh, from C.S. Lewis's writings, and Narnia and Lion, Witch and Wardrobe, and all that. And at some point in the meditation uh, on on the imaginal figure of Aslan, Aslan as a figure, the lion form faded. And a space opened up, but that space was filled with, pregnant with, and um, characterized by the kind of essence of Aslan, the character of Aslan, which I think um, I, I think it was I who put the word uh, nobility to it, as if that might capture it. It may be it may be even more specific than that, but so that can happen. One's actually meditating on an imaginal figure and sort of. Um, it opens up or one penetrates in a certain way that just a space opens up. It's a quasi-jhanic space, actually. Like instead of the realm of infinite space or is the realm of infinite aslan essence, or infinite nobility. So there are so many possibilities in meditation. But in a way, one could say what, what's happened there in our language is one has passed from the imaginal per se to the ideational imaginal through the imaginal figure. The form, the figure has faded, and one's left with a kind of absorption in a space of an ideational, imaginal essence. The same thing, resonating with it, opening to it, feeling one's eros for it, dissolving in it, perhaps to some extent, uh, energy, body, all of that, uh, possible possibilities there, to really let the soul be touched by it, inspired by it, directed by it. And then there's a third possibility, which is meditation on these ideas or ideals, uh, these moral values directly. Actually, um, uh, a sense of uh, justice or the idea of justice or or beauty, if we say that, okay, it's not strictly a moral value, but uh, it almost is for me. But anyway, um, uh, one can get a sense of, in meditating on that, get a sense of that idea. Uh, I'll come back to that in a second, but in in any of these ways, any of those three ways, in meditation, in, 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 in just in being sensitive to, in developing and allowing our sensitivity to, or allowing ourselves to be touched by these values, in feeling our devotion to these um, values and in the choices of our actions, of our speech, of our thought, of what we cultivate. All of that, um, meditation, the sensitivity, the feeling of our devotion, our actions, our choices, all of that feeds our virtue. It grows 
our, uh, the, 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 the virtues in our soul and grows our souls, part of our soul making. And it starts to, as I said, to seep out, to extend to our whole life. And in all of those ways, the meditation, the sensitivity, the devotion, the feeling of the devotion to, the choices, the cultivation, it's possible to sense or conceive the self and the soul, as I said, as participating in that, if we use that phrase from the Colbert passage, the angel or intelligence whose object of intellection is one with it. We sense ourselves participating in these divine ideas in the divine ideational imaginal of the values. And there's a civic, a privilege, a grace, a beauty in that, a strength, there's meaningfulness in that. We can actually sense it and we can conceive it, this kind of participation in that level of being. In the third possibility that I uh, just in that little list there. Um, so it's possible to um, take an idea, it might be a certain kind of, I said, it might be justice, it might be beauty, it might be a certain kind of love. So we may come back to one of the kind of loves that Hartman talks about, love of the remote, love of those in the distant future and, um, and the noble souls in the distant future. One will never meet. And one can orient towards that kind of love or the idea of that kind of love and you know it might start with reflecting on how I am with that in my life and sensing my life and sensing perhaps maybe I do um, orient that way or I don't and what would open that up what would make that beautiful for me or as I said I see it in my life I sense I, I'm already um, touched by that value I'm already devoted to that value. I can see it in the kinds of choices and sacrifices I make. So again, allowing oneself, one story, into it. And then it kind of kind of um, crystallized down to the, the purer idea, the purer ideal. And that can become a meditation object, and we can become kind of absorbed in that sense. So I'm not talking about a lot of thinking at this point. It's really a kind of a space with the essence of this ideational imaginal in it. But in that process, in that meditative process that's possible there, um, uh, it's, again, at some point it will be inevitable that we will notice, just as in meditation on uh, an imaginal figure, an imaginal other, that self and the world become involved, become implicated, become infected in that, in that meditation, in that um, opening up of the soul-making sense. So that there uh, starts to be a corresponding uh, sense or image sense of the self and of the world that is part of the larger picture, larger dynamic, larger actuality of, of meditating on that ideational, imaginal object. You understand? It's the same principles of meditation apply. Here's that beloved other. In this case, it's an idea, a moral value as idea, as essence. Uh, but as we meditate, as, as we meditate and get absorbed in it and feel it with our whole energy body, etc., and the sensitivity and the attunement, 
and the resonances, we start to notice, we will at some point start to notice, that self and world are also become core up. The soul-making sense expands to our sense of self and world. And that's actually, again, part of the deepening and the stabilizing of that kind of meditation. And there may be, if you do pursue this kind of thing, um, there may be two, at certain points, a kind of um, quantum leap. So at first, as I said, it might start, one's actually sort of kind of reflecting on that value or kind of just holding it a little bit in mind and there's thoughts around and then maybe, as I said, a sense of one's life and one's re- or what the status of one's relationship and orientation is with regard to that image. But as one... As one practices with it, it might then take a kind of quantum leap to another level um, where there's a, a, a sense of another realm. One really feels, oh, I'm in another realm here. There's a kind of beatitude there. The pure essence of the idea. Uh, and that kind of quantum leap may or may not, it might be gradual, but there's the possibility of a quantum leap and the possibility of, like, let's say there's a gradation of possibility uh, in this kind of meditation. So sometimes you get these quantum leaps in, in a kind of jhanic meditation. Suddenly, I mean, really, now I'm in the third jhana, it's really a different realm. It really feels I'm, I'm in a different realm here. And so something similar may happen. We enter the sphere, the realm of ideal being, the realm of the ideational imaginal. And in that, as I said, there's, there is great beauty. There is a beatitude. So... Those are possibilities to explore, and uh, certainly in meditation, but also in, in, in the wider range of what I've, I've been saying here. So if you want, you can explore that. Perhaps some of you will even develop uh, these ideas and these possibilities and these connections um, more, more than I have as time goes on. So as, again, with soul-making... There's the opening, the complexifying, the enriching, the extension of the reach, the um, the drawing in of more and more areas of our being, of existence, of our lives, the creation and discovery of different, um, more and more erotic uh, objects for us, erotic others. And so endless possibilities that goes with the soul-making dynamic. So that's here, and it can open out, and perhaps, as I said, um, some of you will also get likewise interested in this as a certain kind of uh, area of potential opening and exploration for soul-making. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.